hours after that initial attack, two ballistic missiles were fired in the direction of the USS Mason from Yemen, where Iranian-backed Houthis operate. The missiles fell far short of the Mason, about 10 miles away, but U.S. ships in the region have been in the line of fire since the war in Gaza began, although this morning it is still unclear whether this attack on the commercial vessel, which is owned by a company led by an Israeli-born shipping magnate, is part of these larger threats coming from these Iranian-backed forces. So that's sort of breaking news overnight, an Iranian-backed group firing missiles at a U.S. warship. So we got that going on, in addition to, obviously, the call it a ceasefire or pause there between Israel and Hamas. And then the capital of Ukraine underwent the biggest drone attack since the war began over the weekend. So many topics and subtopics to discuss with Mike Lyons, who served the U.S. military in a variety of capacities and places around the world and is now a respected military analyst on CNN, among other places. Mike, welcome. How are you? Hey, good morning, guys. Great to be back with you. Hope, hope you had a good Thanksgiving. Let's start with uh, Iran groups firing at our warships. What do you make of that? You know, Iran still is not deterred on any level. Uh, these are uh, Iranian-supported militia groups that, uh, but for Iran, they, they don't have any of this kind of capability. The fact that they could fire on a U.S. warship um, is amazing on some level, but it just shows you the level of support that they get. We see soldiers that are uh, been fired on in Syria and inside of Iraq as well. Um, and, you know, to kind of connect this to Israel a little bit now, it looks like the tie, tie goes to the, um, the Iranians to get their hostages out. We still have American hostages there. It, it, our, it just gets back to our relationship with Iran is just completely dysfunctional. They're just not deterred on any level from a military perspective. And we just continue to chase them all, all around the globe here and let them, you know, kind of lead and dictate what's going on. It, it's the problem Israel's going to have. It, it is literally a matter of time before the Israelis start a war with the Iranians because of their nuclear capability. And, and at some point, the can's getting kicked down the road, but at some point we're going to have to deal with Iran. Well, last time we talked, you were highly unsatisfied with the uh, the amount of return fire that we offered to the Iranian proxies when they were, uh, you know, shooting missiles and drones and whatnot at our guys in a variety of places. No, no, for sure. Until Tehran feels the pain here, you know, we're firing back at proxy groups or ammo dumps or not military formations and not taking away their real capability to do this. But, um, you know, it's a war powers act likely if we're going to fire a missile inside of Iraq or Iran, if we take down their drone capability or go after some, some real military target inside, um, that would escalate. And, and this administration is just un- unwilling to do that. So, therefore, Iran gets to pull all the strings. They're, they are conducting a masterful proxy war uh, in, in, on so many levels. They've got at least 13 or 14 different separate brigades that operate in the Middle East in excess of 100,000 troops. This is why Israel has the problem, because it, it, for them to fight 100,000 troops there, if they ever got their stuff all together, it'd be, it'd be a real challenge from a military perspective. And on top of that, they're spread out in the north and with Hezbollah. They're spread out in the West Bank with uh, Fatah and other organizations that are there. Um, inside of Syria, and um, you know, it, it, it looks like now Hamas is just trying to get everybody to stop the fighting, at least because they're trading off time for hostages. Right? I mean, every you know, every day they get a break, but they could release ten more hostages. At some point, we're, they're running out of hostages to give up, and Israel continues to say they're going to war is going to start every day that they, we we delay. Right now, we we're, we unfortunately are going to have more IDF soldiers killed, but that's that's not factored into the equation. Yeah, so that's uh, one of the reasons we wanted to have you on today because we we're off all last 
week, and I was following your Twitter feed and some of your comments on the so-called ceasefire. Is Hamas using this to rearm, redig in, re-anything? Absolutely. Reposition forces, likely sending more to the south, um, knowing full well that the civilians are there to hide behind uh, with that tunnel organization they have. Israel has no choice for the IDF positions there. They've got to kind of hold back a little bit and go into defensive positions. They have to protect themselves, too. Uh, I think, it, and it's very difficult from a soldier's mind to, to kind of flip this switch to go from, you know, warfighter to kind of peacekeeper on the defensive side. Now, all of a sudden, let's say the deal falls through today and they go 24 or 48 hours and no hostages released. They're going to have to make a very tough decision to start the war back again. So what does that mean? Uh, for your IDF soldier on the ground, you're you're awaiting what that order, what those orders are. I think Israel has got to take that very slowly again, bring back airstrikes, drone strikes, artillery strikes before, you know, kind of re-engaging in the kind of combat that we saw there before they stopped. Israel had all the momentum, and unfortunately, and Hamas knew that, and that's why they, they got the deal they had. Yeah, and they that's interesting. Stop. Yeah. Mike, there's an incredibly strange disconnect, I think, in the discussion of this topic. I mean, around here, we consider it self-evident that Israel decided Hamas must be eliminated as a threat, period. Not knocked back on their heels and then let negotiations begin. October 7th proved to them it's untenable to live side by side with Hamas. Meanwhile, here in the New York Times, for instance, I'm reading that Joe Biden's hoping to alter the trajectory of the war and extend this ceasefire, blah, blah, blah. There is a complete disconnect between that thought and the fact that it is untenable to live next to Hamas ever again. Nobody's talking to each other about this. Right, and and thing is, you know, regime change is a military mission that that the IDF can accomplish, but right now it's conflicting with the getting the hostages back, and there's going to be so much pressure internally on Israel to continue down that path. Um, But the only way that Hamas changes is is if they, you know, destroy militarily, or they surrender. Let's say if they decide to fight conventionally, but we don't expect that to happen. So this is the challenge that, that, that they have. Um, and, and again, the pressure coming inside of Israel to, to continue to pause while they get hostages back, I think is so great. And to their, you know, and to get humanitarian aid, all those things that go with it. I would love to bring back the generals from World War II and say, this is how we're fighting war this day. What do you, what do you think of this? How do you think this would go? And each, you know, the allied generals would probably say, well, you might as well just plan on spending the next 10 years at war because you're never going to destroy your enemy if you keep starting and stopping like the things you're doing here. Yeah, that's an interesting perspective I hadn't heard that you have that we don't have. Because Netanyahu is saying, you know, the moment this is done, we're like full back into the war. But you're saying psychologically it's it's just not that easy. You can't flip a switch and go back to it. No, it's not. And it's from a soldier's perspective, they're going to recognize that they're going to have to start an air campaign first again. They're going to have to soften back up the battlefield as Hamas has moved around. They're going to have to go back to collecting intelligence because they're going to put mm. their soldiers at risk. You know, the IDF has got to protect its force as well. And I get, you know, we're trading off IDF lives for hostages' lives. No one wants to make that decision, right? But, but that's really what's, what's going to come down to here. Some, I'm sure some Hamas soldiers are already in those tunnels heading south. The, the, Israel's going to have to pursue them right down the strip they're going to be pursuing them right into israel right into egypt uh, that's just a matter of time so this is just prolonging the war when it, when the time comes well if our subject is uh 
willingness to commit yourself completely to defeating your enemy, no matter the costs, public opinion, that sort of thing. You've got Israel, then you've got Russia, which obviously does not share their uh, their hesitance to do what they feel like they need to do in Ukraine. Uh, I'll hit you with a statement. Tell me if I'm right, wrong, or, or somewhere in between. This is a stalemate. Ukraine cannot drive Russia out of their territory. That's true at this point without any offensive weapons, and they we're giving them enough equipment so they don't lose, but no, they won't be able to go on any kind of offensive. Uh, you're seeing now the winner is now going to start taking hold in that part of the world, and it is a stalemate. And it's I'm surprised that Russia hasn't marshaled its military in order because they should have defeated Ukraine by now, just very frankly, based on the size and their scope and their industrial capability and all the things, the advantages they have on their side, but they haven't. So good, good on Ukraine. But the second the United States and allied forces and NATO stops supporting Ukraine, then um, then I think they're at, they're at risk again. So yeah, that's that's definitely true that that Ukraine. Does does not have that capability to move them out. It, this, uh, this counteroffensive is on for six months, and, and now it's virtually stalled. Well, this will be argued throughout history, probably. But if we had given Ukraine some of the stuff that we gave them late, would they have been able to uh, win this war? Well, they would have had to have gotten them day one, right? You know, F-16s and and the like. They would have to, and it had have to have modern day ones, modern day equipment, ATACMs. They would they would need all the offensive weapons as opposed to defensive weapons. The U.S. does a good job of selling, you know, our, our uh, allies defensive weapons because we really don't want to be accused of then getting them having to take those weapons and go on the offensive with, right? That's that's kind of the downside there. But if if they had better tanks, if they had more ATACMs, they had deeper artillery they had those kinds of things day one maybe because now we're 18 months into it almost two years into it um they would have this you know, more of a competency and capability to do this but to try to do it now you're, you're adding water thinking you're going to get a tree in the next six weeks it's just not going to happen military analyst mike lyons uh, mike we appreciate the perspective very much great to talk to you thanks guys thanks for having me armstrong and getty If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos' picture was already up on the wall. 
Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.